I had bought a small software product for like 10K or something. It was a tool that we were using at Ninja Outreach and they weren't keeping up on it. So I said, oh, let me buy it from you guys. And then on a rainy day, I'll invest in it and it'll be like my next business. Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Confessions of a B2B Marketer podcast. My name is Tom Hunt, your host, and have we got a special episode for you today. We're joined by someone who I've actually been following for, I think, around five years. So Dave Schneider is currently the CEO of Shortlift, a full-service digital marketing agency, but he also grew and sold a SaaS product called Ninja Outreach. And so around 2016, 17, I was also bootstrapping a software flash marketplace. And I actually guest blog post on the Ninja Outreach blog, did a little bit of work with Ninja Outreach, but kind of followed their journey. They were at a later stage than we were. And it was just great to see Dave was sharing a lot of his learnings from their journey. They have since progressed, Dave has sold, Ninja Outreach and now runs his own agency. So in this discussion, we're going to talk more about those early days at Ninja Outreach, how they grew that SaaS product, how the sale went, what happened during that process, and why Dave has now shifted to running an agency. You can kind of understand the parallels between Dave and my journey because we, of course, are kind of right now split between the agency and the SaaS model. So it was a super interesting chat for me, and I'm pretty sure it will be a super interesting discussion for you. Now, before we jump in, I do have to give a shout out to my man, Olam Sule, who left us a glowing review on Apple. He said, top podcast, really good stuff, high value and open. Thank you very much, Olam. Olam currently runs a small consultancy called Dolphin Analytics. So if you do want to learn about machine learning visualization and the impact that can have on your business, then simply Google Dolphin Analytics, or check out Olam Sule on LinkedIn. Thank you, Olam. Right, let's jump right into that interview with Dave. We'll kick off in three, two, one. Dave, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Tom. Now, before we start, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I actually wrote a guest post for Ninja Outreach like in 2016. Do you remember? Okay, you do. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Your name was very familiar. I was like, oh, I probably know this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I think we were kind of, I was building Virtual Valley, which didn't work out well. Ninja Outreach worked out a lot better than Virtual Valley in the end. But we were kind of, we were both bootstrapped, both heavily focused on content marketing. And you guys had a blog that I wanted to get on. So I emailed you and then you let me post. I think the title of the episode was how to start a software company with only like two grand or something. Anyway, so the reason I bring that up for the audience is, is this is the context is that I have been aware of Dave. Really, I think it was Ninja Outreach that I first kind of saw you, but I know you had a blog before that, that you kind of combined into Ninja Outreach. Didn't you? That's right. Yeah. I was originally writing just a personal blog. It was called Self-Made Businessman. It was just a business blog, entrepreneurship. I had been doing, I guess, uh, digital marketing for a little bit of time. I actually like had a travel blog. That's one of those things because I was traveling around, but I wasn't. I was writing about travel and I wanted to be writing more about business. So I started this personal blog and that was when I actually... It was kind of through that that I met Mark because I ended up being like a podcast guest on, one of, on his podcast. And Mark ended up being the co-founder of Ninja Outreach. And then years down the line, two, three years later or so, I no longer really had time to kind of or motivation to keep up with self-made businessman. 
And so we basically rolled it in a ninja arch, like you said. We basically just transplanted all the articles and then redirected the URLs. Got it. And so I actually, I, I want to take a quick step back in the pre-starting Ninja Outreach. Where did the interest or where did the spark to actually start either learning about marketing or starting a business come from? So a lot of you know learning about marketing and starting a business, it came from us deciding to travel. This is me and my wife. We quit our jobs. We were working corporate jobs back in 2010, 2011, 2012 or so. And we, we decided we wanted to go travel. But we didn't quite have enough money saved up to do the full extent of the trip that we wanted. And so that was when I started looking into websites and SEO and content and could you generate money online and, and that type of stuff. And we basically started with the travel blog and started earning money through that by working with sponsors. And then as I worked that for a couple of years, I just realized that you know travel wasn't really my passion and I wanted to build a product. I wanted to build a product that had customers and users and that if I felt like it was something more tangible than just like this travel blog website. And so I started thinking about something like Ninja Outreach. It wasn't exactly the same vision, but it was a sort of a content marketing tool. And I did a little customer research and then I met Mark and we kind of just navigated our way into this influencer marketing platform. Got it. So actually one of my later questions is going to be about why you now have an SEO agency. But I kind of understand now in the Ever since you started in this whole game, you've been in the SEO and content world. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I mean, there are people that know that better than I do for sure. There are kind of you know SEO experts and stuff like that. But the majority, I guess, of work that I've done, it generally revolves around inbound marketing. So SEO and content and, and things of that nature. Cool. So then Mark interviews you on his podcast, you get chatting, and then you decide to build together this tool. Yeah, exactly. Which is... It was fully bootstrapped from the start. And I'll just give the audience an understanding. Well, actually, people can go and check out Ninja Outreach right now. But from my memory, it would allow you to easily find and then reach out to influencers. Yeah, that was definitely the intention. And I think that for some people, it was easier than others. It kind of depended uh, what influencers you were looking for and what niche you were in. And you know, that was the vision we were trying to achieve. Cool. And so you started this, I assume there was a time period where you guys were actually building a thing. Let's just skip that. And I want to talk about, because this is a podcast of B2B marketers, is generating those first like up to 10K in revenue. I know content did play a big part, but was that the core driver of the customers? I think content played a role even in the early days. You know, the thing is, we were starting back in 2014. So you're looking at like six, seven years ago or so which is obviously not decades ago, but I do feel that maybe, I don't know if the strategies would be the same as they were then. The very first stuff that we did was we did a lot of outreach because there were people that were already using tools like Buzzstream and Inkybee. And we wanted to get in touch with these people and say, look, we have this other tool that we're building and we think that maybe it offers something that those tools don't. Would you consider giving it a try? And we kind of isolated that audience of people that were using those tools but weren't like super happy with them or didn't feel that they were offering them the complete role. Back in those days, those tools were purely prospecting tools. They weren't really outreach tools. And so they'd have to like do their prospecting in one tool and then essentially export into another tool and do outreach there. And you lose something when you have to do that. You lose something within your workflow and the data and stuff like that. So the idea was to kind of put it all in one. And so that was kind of, you know, we were able to generate some respectable interest from just that pitch. Maybe we had like 100 to 200 or so people 
that were kind of interested in being beta users. They were kind of excited about the product. And it honestly didn't, it didn't launch well because the product was really, it was really basic. When we first launched, it was a desktop app, which was pretty... Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, that was a terrible decision. And it was, and only Windows users could use it. So, I mean, we had just kind of, I, not offended, but <laughs> mm. excluded for sure, a large part of the market. And so the, it launched pretty terribly, but I think content and the traffic that we had generated to the site helped some inbound leads kind of come in and people were giving it a shot. And I think some of the big things that helped us in that first year to get from zero to 10K, because it took us about like 12 months or so, was launching on Product Hunt. I remember like, you know, we had gotten maybe a couple thousand MRR through the hard way. And then we did a Product Hunt launch and that went pretty well. And then we did an AppSumo launch right at the end, I think as well. I think it was like October or something of our first year. And AppSumo didn't necessarily provide us with monthly subscribers because you basically sell a lifetime version of your tool. But it gave us a lot of exposure. And people basically saw us after the deal was done and they came, they came back to us. And so I think those two kind of product launches for us were the icing on the cake that kind of got us to 10K. Got it. And then before we move on to the next kind of realm of growth, you mentioned reaching out to people that were using both Dream or other products. How did you find those people? So we used a lot of different approaches. I mean, it was really scrappy. So like, for example, we take a look at the logos that they put on their website, you know, people who had given testimonials or reviews, people that had done like social mentions that had mentioned those tools in a tweet or something like that. People who had written an article and featured, you know, and mentioned the tools in the article. It didn't, we couldn't necessarily guarantee, like we didn't have access to their user base, obviously. It wasn't like we knew 100% that they were using it, but we basically reached out to everybody that we could identify had an opinion about the tool, who had some knowledge about the tool. And more often than not, we were kind of right in that they were in the right target audience for us. So basically just pure hustle on the outreach. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Now, when you did get to 10K at the end of that first year, did that then cover yours and Mark's and any other resources you've had, like living costs? Like, were you able to pay yourself a salary? No. <laughs> I think you said, I missed a little bit of the first year, you said like when we got to 10K or something. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely not. We had a developer. Well, there were originally three co-founders and one of them was a developer. But after like six or so months, of not paying ourselves, he said, Hey guys, I gotta get a job. And it was, you know, it was kind of a blow, but I understood where he was coming from because we weren't paying ourselves and we had no expectation about when we were gonna pay ourselves. We made some money from AppSumo from the actual like the launch, but largely that just went and paid me back for money that I had invested in the business. So it wasn't like I actually profited off of that, but I just kind of brought myself back to even and we had like some money in the bank. I, I think maybe we made like 35 or 40 grand from AppSumo or something like that. But basically all the money that we had, we just continued to hire people. We brought on a developer, we maybe brought on a second developer, we brought on a marketer. The product had so much ways to go in the early days that there just wasn't really room for us to take a salary. So were you living off savings or you had a separate? Yeah, I was living off savings. I didn't have any other businesses going at the time. In a lot of time I was living with my parents. During other times, I was traveling and I was in countries in Asia and things like that where cost of living was like pretty cheap, talking like one to $2,000 a month per person. And, you know, I mean, the travel blog had done well. It wasn't a multi-million dollar business or anything, but it had given us like savings that if I was living frugally, we were basically fine. And I think, 
I don't know if I continued to make a little bit of money, but not that much. Yeah. Basically, I yeah, was living off of savings. Cool. And so then, and I read on your LinkedIn profile that you got to 100K per month. From 10 to 100, what were the channels that got you there? So that's actually not true. I mean, I don't know if my LinkedIn profile is inaccurate. We got to about 60 or so, I think, is more accurate. There were you know months of up and down, but we never did make it to 100. We ended up selling it beforehand. But regardless, I think the answer to the question is kind of more or less the same. And uh, you know, essentially, one of the big things about kind of hitting 10K or thereabouts is that you just have like a lot more to work with. You have a couple people maybe that you have at your company, like I mentioned, you know, this is because we weren't paying ourselves and we're working with offshore labor, but we still had individuals that could do some work. And you have a user base and that introduces analytics and opportunities to do conversion rate optimization and improve your onboarding and get feedback about the tool. And there's just a lot more to work with. I feel that like the first 10K, it really is the hardest. There were bumps along the road. We stagnated at 20K, for example, for like three months straight. We even kind of started to go down and I was like, oh, I guess like this is it (laughs) and we're done. Like uh, maybe we're not going to grow anymore from here. But honestly, like we mentioned the blog early on, that was another one of those kind of inflection points when not that my blog had like major traffic, but it got like thousands of visitors a month. And when we imported it, for lack of a better word, into Ninja Outreach, that actually converted like people, that actually helped signups. So that was like one of those big kind of uptick things. But then a lot of it was, yeah, it was really just kind of trying to optimize every single month and improve the tool and improve the onboarding and all the little growth hacks you can think of related to software. And we just kind of chugged our way there. Got it. And then why did you sell? There's no sort of one word answers to kind of why why we sold. It came down to a lot of different factors. The main thing was that we had been running it for four years and we had been grinding like pretty hard for a lot of it. Like I mentioned, not paying ourselves a salary for much of that time. Eventually, we did start paying ourselves a salary, but it wasn't ever really that much. Maybe it was 6K a month, like at the height. One From what I remember, it was like 3K for a while. Not enough to live like in the States well, I guess I would say. And so we've been grinding pretty hard. Maybe we were like burnt out a little bit. And I wanted to move back to the States. Uh, I wanted to get married. I wanted to get an apartment. And I felt like pretty much all my net worth was in Ninja Outreach. I was concerned about some external things going on like uh, GDPR and the future of the tool and and whether or not you know Ninja Outreach really was the solution for influencer marketing. There are a lot of different approaches to that problem, marketplaces and things like that. And I questioned kind of whether or not the solution really was the way to go and whether it was a good long-term kind of investment. Like I said, we branded it as an influencer marketing tool, but it was largely just kind of like an outreach tool. And I didn't really like email outreach as a space. It is way too closely related to spam, basically. I mean, you're essentially emailing people in mass. And there was always this conflict between like what the users wanted and what we thought was appropriate. We were one of the earlier tools like in our niche to kind of come out with automated emailing where you could basically like set up a campaign and it would go on autopilot. I think we did that before MailShake and BuzzStream, for example. And it wasn't like those tools weren't capable of doing that. They could have done that like years before us. It was just that they always felt uncomfortable about the idea of kind of allowing users to just kind of automatically email hundreds of people. But eventually the crowd kind of spoke and they just said, this is what we want. We want automated email functionality. And so we kind of decided we would do that. We would build that feature. And we said, hey, it's probably better that they build it with us than they build it with somebody else. 
because at least then we kind of add some controls. And we tried to add some safety nets, like an unsubscribe link and just different things that made it like a better version of just being spam. But it was just kind of constantly going in that direction. And so for, yeah, all those reasons, we started looking for an exit. I totally make sense. I had a kind of a similar realization on this with Virtual Valley as well. How did you come to the valuation of the business when you did sell? So if you have a software business and you want a professional opinion on evaluation, there's frankly a number of marketplaces that will do that for you for free. Like FE International. Like they met with us, they went through the numbers, they told us what they thought it was kind of worth based on their experience. I mean, the way they do that is just part of like, it's just networking, it's the hope that you'll sell it with them and, and stuff like that. So they basically provide that for free. So that kind of gave us an idea of, of ballpark where we were and also to understand their approach so that months down the line, because we didn't immediately sell it after talking with them and we never actually sold it through them, how to basically value it like months later. And it largely came from looking at the total revenue of the business. Was it, I don't know. I actually don't remember if it was revenue or profit. I guess it was profit, but doing a lot of addbacks. So addbacks were, you know, what had been invested in the business that were really growth-oriented investments and what were kind of like actually keeping the lights on type stuff. And the approach was that if you had a bunch of addbacks, if you had a bunch of things that you invested in that were just growth, that you could essentially add those back to the profit. Somebody, like I said, somebody will explain this way better than I will. But the idea is kind of like if somebody just bought the business and decided to invest absolutely nothing in it, what would they be earning? And there's obviously like a little bit of flaw in that because some degree of growth investment is necessary to kind of maintain a business. Otherwise, you will like decay. But to a large extent, like a lot of the things that we did, like we redid the website and we had redone the app and all those things we had done the year before we sold, we would kind of say, look, like, those are one-off costs that you're not going to need to pay for again. And they basically have benefited the business. And so we want to kind of retroactively add those back to the profit. And once we came up with that number, I think it's like sort of like a seller's discretionary earnings or something like that, you basically have to agree on a multiple, which in those days was something like three or three to four, something like that. You know, This is not like a high growth product. And not all software... It means it's like high growth and it's going to sell for like 10 or 20x or something like that. It's just kind of like that's like a standard multiple for a nice software business that's been growing. And so that's kind of where we came up with the number. And ultimately, where the which force did the buyer come from? Was it from a marketplace or was it from a network or was it from a customer? I think none of the above. They reached out to us. They were essentially they were shopping for products. I think that the buyer owns a portfolio of software businesses and they were looking to add to them. And so they were doing outreach to basically solicit software owners to kind of sell their business. And they weren't looking in the marketplaces and that's why they didn't find us there. And we had a discussion in July of like 2017 or something, which is like six months or so before we ended up selling. And it was a good talk and we took some next steps, but we were in the middle of rebranding Ninja Reach and we just felt that now wasn't the right time. And so we continued to work on it for six or so months. And then in January of the new year, we reached back out and we said, hey, we think we're ready right now. We think it's like in a good place and that's a good time to hand it off. Got it. And because it was directed enough to pay 10, 20% to a broker or marketplace. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow. I understand there's a huge value in like the marketplaces that they create and the access to the buyers and those types of things. But we actually did talk with a marketplace. 
I think they're called digital acquisitions. At least that's what they were called at the time. And they got us a couple conversations, but nobody offered us any, like we got the same offer from them that we got from this guy. And the difference being that there was no like 10 to 15% commission. So it was kind of a no brainer. Cool. So at some point in 2018, you have this lump of cash from the sale. You move back to the States, I assume. What happens next? So I had bought a, a small software product for like 10K or something. It was a tool that we were using at Ninja Outreach and they weren't keeping up on it. So I said, oh, let me buy it from you guys. And then on a rainy day, I'll invest in it and it'll be like my next business. I wasn't exactly sure that we were going to sell Ninja Outreach at the time, but I guess that was kind of the thinking. And so I probably took a couple of weeks and I probably didn't do that much of anything. But then I, I wanted to build up the software business. I thought, oh, hey, let's do it again. And I was really excited about this product. I had used it. It worked for us. It was like a churn reduction tool. And I felt like it had a lot of potential. And I was like, okay, I'm going to open up the playbook from Ninja Outreach and let's go again. I started guest posting and doing all the, you know, hire a developer. And I wanted to be careful to not overspend because it wasn't like I had exited an amount that I was like, never had to worry about money again or anything close to that. But I had enough that it could be dangerous that I could allow myself to just spend money and, and not really like pay attention to it because I was bootstrapping it, but I was, was self funding it. So, I started kind of working on that product. And then that led to some services. I started doing a little consulting and I started to do... Basically, I wanted to hire a team who would do the inbound marketing, like the guest posting and the SEO for me for this new product, which was called Less Churn. Because after four years, I just didn't really have the motivation to do it myself, to be honest. Like four years prior to that, I was totally fine to live in my parents, in my old room, my parents' house and write eight guest posts a day or whatever it was and just churn them out. But four years after basically growing the company and having worked with a business that was, you know, it was small, but it was 50K a month. It was, it was good. I just couldn't go back to like square one again. I really kind of struggled to just do that myself. So I brought people on and we started kind of doing, executing the service. And that led to services that could have essentially be offered to other people because I thought, hey, why am I spending money on these services to service myself when if I open this up to some other people, they'll essentially pay for it. And then I'll just reap the benefits of kind of tagging along with this service, which is already funded by clients. And so essentially, I'm kind of going in parallel with these two businesses. One is the software product and the other is the services that are all kind of related. And eventually, after a couple of months, the software product I just didn't feel like it had legs. It just didn't get... There was a lot more complexities than I appreciated when I started working on it. And it was too too niche. And the services actually did start to get traction. And people were kind of interested in that, even though it was nothing exceptional. It was like standard digital marketing agency type stuff. And so I kind of just went down that path. But So now you're fully on the agency business. Yeah, now, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the kind of inception of that business totally makes sense. And either you could build a team and start doing this for your own product, which was probably going to be expensive and you were concerned about investing too much in that product, or you could still build a team, but sell the author to clients, get them to pay and then use that. Okay. And then at, at some point you were like, okay, this SaaS business probably doesn't have legs, got rid of that. And now you're focused full time on the agency. Makes sense. And I did have a question here about why an SEO agency, but it kind of makes sense now, like your, your thing, like you have, it must be nearly 10 years in the SEO content game. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem like that long, but I guess it's probably yeah about that about that long. <laughs> awesome. And how are you finding the being on the service side of things? It's different. I think there's a lot of pros and cons. What I've really enjoyed with Shortlist is building a team. That's what I always really liked about Ninja Outreach, and that's what I like about Shortlist is kind of building the team, bringing people together, setting up an organization, defining a culture, defining kind of roles and a mission, and all those different types of things. And so whether it's kind of ninja outreach or shortlist, it's very similar in that regard. And I enjoy that. I'd say that I enjoyed the software aspect more than services, like the challenges and the complexities of running a software business. I like to think about user experience and I like to think about how we're going to reduce churn and how we're going to improve onboarding and things like that and really getting into the metrics and having a user base. And I liked... um, coming up with features and uh, seeing the developers create them and, and stuff like that. So I think you know, I still kind of have that soft spot for software, for sure. But I will say that the services business, it's been good. I like the clients that we work with and being able to help other people grow their business. It costs us very little to start, honestly. Like Ninja Outreach, like I, was, you know, I had invested tens of thousands of dollars to kind of get that product off the ground. And it was kind of this big... It was a little bit of a risk, I'd say, whereas shortlist almost took nothing. I mean, it was almost like profitable from day one in a sense because clients basically pay for for, for everything that needs to be done. And if clients are paying, then you don't need to do anything. Uh, whereas like a software, you have to kind of like always pay for hosting and developers and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I like I said, I, and I don't work directly with too many of the clients, to be honest, because I find it kind of stressful. Yeah. And uh, so I'd like to stay a little high level and work more internally with the team and things like that. So I, I used, the short answer is there's a lot of differences, but there's also a surprising number of similarities and challenges with kind of just running a business and growing a business. And it always seems like the grass is greener. And when I was in the software, I always thought like this stuff is so hard and I wish I was doing something simpler. And but the services business has its challenges too. And it's just kind of like, yeah, it's a little grass is greener thing sometimes. You think that you're there's another SaaS product in you. Ultimately, you'll go back to the SaaS game or even start one up from within the agency. I hope so. I do feel that I don't think Shortlist will be my last business. I hope not. And I have yeah goals of starting another SaaS business. I mean, to some extent, the idea was build the agency and then make that profitable and then use that to invest in other ideas and products and businesses. Because now the agency is an asset in that is a it is a team of marketers and developers and designers and copywriters and kind of all the pieces that are there that are needed to build a business, just kind of like I used to have at Ninja Outreach. But at the same time, I don't want to be naive. Software is really difficult. It was difficult back with Ninja Outreach, and I think it's gotten even more crowded since then. And yeah, I mean, there's no guarantees for sure. Yeah, I think I totally agree with the graph of greener thing and the common reason why people say you shouldn't start an agency because it won't scale, it may not scale. It may be very hard to scale that to a thousand people and like 5 million a year in revenue. But to scale it to 10, 20 people and a million dollars a year in revenue, which I assume is going to be good enough to live a good life in America for the founder, they're like, that's re- much more achievable than building a SaaS company that gets to 100K. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's a, I don't know if double-edged sword is the right kind of phrase here, but I mean, I pay myself more now with the agency than I ever did with Ninja Outreach, to be honest. But the agency would never sell 
for what Ninja Orange did, or at least like it wouldn't today, you know, maybe it could like down the line. But so I think that there's this trade-off between a little bit of income and versus valuation and, uh, and kind of what's the goal there. And so I like the agency as the agency isn't a business that I intend to sell. It's, it's not built to sell. It's built to kind of provide myself with something more stable and proven. Because when I sold Ninja Outreach, like, yeah, I had obviously made money and I wasn't struggling. But I also, I mean, like the day after you sell, like you have no income, you have no audience, you have nothing. And so then you kind of have to just climb up from zero. And there's only so many times, I think, in a person's life that you want to do that, that you kind of want to be like, oh, here we go again. You know, it's a little too much. So that's why I like the agency and that I think that it, it offers a little bit more long-term stability, but there's less upside. And so I would like to eventually yeah, like start a software product or some other business that I thought had more potential and scalability and things like that. But still keep the salary from shortlist, of course. For sure. <laughs> Makes not sense. that it's massive, by the way. I mean, it's definitely not. <laughs> yeah. I hate to give the wrong impression to people. I mean, you know, these are, it's still not like uh, massive, massive salaries, but it's more than it was with Ninja Outreach for sure, you know, and it's like enough to live on. So, you got it. One final question on the agency thing. You said that you like to keep a bit of distance from the clients. That must mean that you've been able to hire people good enough to, for you to hand that off. Any tips on doing that, hiring people good enough that you're happy for them to deal with everything to do with the client? Yeah. So, I mean, I work mainly with uh, people who are offshore. So a lot of our team is in Macedonia or the Balkans in general. They could be in Serbia and Ukraine and things like that. Firstly, I'll say that if you ever have goals of your employees, like working directly with clients and you're working in offshore labor, they have to speak good English. And in my experience, whatever somebody's English is on day one, that's what it is. Like it doesn't get any better two or three years from now. You can teach people to do SEO and content and stuff like that, but you are not going to teach like a 25 year old to have a better accent or to speak English better. It's just, that's just what they grew up with. That was how they learned it and things like that. So you have to know kind of like what's teachable and what's not. So having a really solid English is kind of a prerequisite for joining the team if you're going to be client-facing. And if you're not, then don't worry about it. But that is definitely one of the things I will say is kind of like, I have maybe one or two people that I'm like, man, they, they have the skills, but I just wouldn't be comfortable putting them in front of a client because I don't think that their English is strong enough. And then other than that, I really like working out of Eastern Europe. I've done work with a lot of people globally and Ninja Arch had a lot of people in Asia and Malaysia and the Philippines and Bangladesh and things like that. But I'm just finding that the Eastern Europe cohort of people there just, they're talented, the English is good, the time zone's not too far ahead, and they just kind of seem to share the same work ethic and, and work values that I'm used to as an American. And so that's another kind of little tip there. But I mean, other than that, I wouldn't say I'm doing anything particularly fancy. I mean, a lot of the people I find through Upwork and I work with them for Ben and work with them on projects and then just kind of develop the relationship over time. Makes total sense. Dave, thank you for coming on and kind of being very open and honest about the last 10 years, the journey throughout the last 10 years. It does seem like having an agency where it seems like relatively low stress or less stress maybe than Ninja Outreach and getting more cash from it regularly is like a pretty good result. And who knows what's going to happen in the future regarding other SaaS products, et cetera, or even just the growth of the agency. So thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing that with us. Where where shall I send people? Yeah, shortlist.io. Uh, okay. And so if anybody actually know, the final question is, 
Is there a range of services or is there a specific service that you guys provide? No, there's a range of services. And like I said, we'll do inbound marketing. We'll do SEO and content. We can do general growth marketing, hook you up with the marketer. We do design and dev and branding. We've done a bunch of logo designs and stuff like that. So if any of the above uh, fits, yeah, feel free to reach out to us. All right. So if you want the overview of a decade veteran in the online marketing game, and then go to shortlist.io. I'm not sure if it'll be Dave personally, but someone from Dave's team can help you out. Dave, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And I hope you enjoyed that discussion, guys. I also want to say thank you for all of the responses we had for the previous episode where I spent about 13 minutes discussing the current revenue stats for both Beecraft and Fame and then detailing what we're going to be focusing on as we look into 2021. I am pleased to share that the revenue numbers that I did include on those episodes, so it, it was $400 MRR for Beecraft and $20,000 for Fame. They are or have increased as we moved from January into February and I'll cover exactly how and why that's happened in future episodes. If you're listening now, please, I would love to have your feedback. Just go onto Apple Podcasts, leave an honest rating and review. And if you're on a different podcast app, of course, do that there as well. Send me a screenshot of that review and I'll get you a shout out on this show in one of the upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening.